Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Given the unfortunate passing of Deb Perringer, I've had some difficult decisions to make over the last week. Our mission has always been clear, a relentless pursuit of truth and justice. Given the simplicity of that statement, our path forward is seemingly clear. The truth has yet to be discovered in this case, and I don't believe that justice has been served. So my initial thought was keep going. But then I considered the second prong of our mission, to help those who can no longer help themselves. And while that part of our mission could apply to Deb, Lloyd, and Agnes, it only does so symbolically at this point. The reality is that Deb and her parents can no longer be helped in this world. With that in mind, I shifted our focus to the hundreds of case submissions that have been sent into us. The letters and online submissions are full of people who desperately need our help. I've had to consider the consequences of moving forward with Deb's case. The harsh reality is that devoting our time and resources to clear the name of a dead woman would mean that another person will continue to suffer a life behind bars for a crime that they didn't commit. Ultimately, I've made my decision. We need to move on to a new case. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Although we will be moving on to a new case on the podcast, we will not be leaving Deb or the Courtney's behind. Over the next couple weeks, we'll be establishing a website where the entire case file will be uploaded for listeners to continue the investigation behind the scenes. We're still working out the details, so stay tuned in the coming weeks for more information. As updates become available, I'll be updating you all through the podcast. I believe wholeheartedly that the Truth and Justice audience contains some of the best researchers in the world. There is truth to be found. I'm confident that you will find it. In the meantime, we still have work to do. Over the next two or three weeks, we're going to be wrapping up our coverage of the Courtney case, at least for the time being. This week, we're going to start off by buttoning up some loose ends. 
the items that we're going to discuss today are things that I've had on deck for future episodes. First up, the autopsies. There are two major questions that have been looming around the autopsies. First and foremost, Agnes's lividity. The lividity issue first came into question when a listener noticed that the clocks in the Courtney's house displayed a time of 11.50 p.m. as the crime scene video panned through the bedroom where Agnes was found. From there, we took a look at Dr. Pirwani's autopsy and noticed that he noted posterior lividity. The significance there was the fact that it takes 6 to 12 hours for lividity to fully fix in a dead body. Since we know from the video that Agnes was still lying face down at midnight, and from the detective notes, it seems as though her body was still not moved for at least another hour, I determined that her time of death could not be any time sooner than 1 p.m. To verify this, I brought in world-renowned forensic pathologist Dr. Cyril Weck to weigh in on the subject. His conclusion was that based on the autopsy report, Agnes likely didn't die until at least 3 p.m. However, he acknowledged that at the extreme end of the window for lividity to fix, the time of death could possibly be as early as 1 p.m., but no sooner. It seemed as though we had our time of death worked out until my trip to Fort Worth a few weeks ago. Some listeners have shared on the Facebook fan page a screenshot from one of the TV shows about Deb's case. The screenshot featured a black and white image of a photo of Agnes's back taken during her autopsy. The question was raised at that point, did Dr. Pirwani make a mistake in his autopsy report? The image seemed to show no signs of posterior lividity that he had noted. But, this was a grainy black and white image, so we couldn't really make a definitive determination from it. But when I went to the clerk's office, I finally found our answer. Contained in the files that Allison and I were allowed to view were a set of autopsy photos. These were the original prints. They were in color, and they were very clear. And the bottom line is this. Dr. Pirwani screwed up. There's no question about it. Agnes absolutely did not have posterior lividity, none whatsoever. In the photos, her back was pale with no discoloration. However, the side of her face and her chest were a deep, dark purple. In other words, she had fixed anterior lividity, not posterior. Pirwani's mistake sent us on what now appears to be a wild goose chase. Fortunately, now we at least know the truth. So where does that leave us regarding time of death? Well, it really doesn't change much. The anterior lividity doesn't do anything for time of death. We know that Agnes was lying face down for over six hours after the police arrived, and presumably another four or five hours before their arrival. Her body presented anterior lividity, which is exactly what we would expect under these circumstances. So we're back to square one with our known factors. We know that Agnes was alive at around 10.30 a.m. when she left the produce market. We know it's about a 25-minute drive home. So, we know that she was still alive upon her arrival at 10.55, give or take five minutes. Based on the fact that the bed sheets were pulled back, an extra pillow was found on the bed, and Agnes's glasses placed on the nightstand in her room, we know that at some point after arriving home, she laid down for a nap. This is also consistent with her journal entry, where she noted that she wasn't feeling well and needed to take a nap after another chiropractor appointment. There was a soft shutdown of the computer in the bedroom at 11.19 a.m. It's my feeling that Agnes was the one who shut down the computer in order to darken and quiet the room for her nap. Now, it's my feeling that Deborah was already gone at this point. 
And this is why I'm leaning that way. In Deb's statement to police, she says that when her mom got home, they had a brief conversation, she got the paperwork for the trees, and then she left. Now, I'm not suggesting that we simply take Deb's word here, but there's something missing from her narrative. The nap. Even if Deb was guilty, I don't see any utility in saying that her mother walked her to the door when she left, as opposed to Agnes laying down for a nap and her leaving. In fact, I think the opposite is true. If Deb was trying to give an innocuous story to police, I would almost expect her to mention the nap. Remember, if she's the killer, she knows the attack on Agnes occurred while she was in the back bedroom napping. She could easily set the scene and add veracity to her statement by ending her visit with her mother laying down. Instead, Deb never mentions the nap. Not in any of her statements to police. She's never mentioned it in an interview. It wasn't even documented in her handwritten itinerary which she explained to me in a letter before her passing, was written at her husband Paul's request once it was made apparent that she was a suspect. Personally, I don't think that Deb had any idea that her mother took a nap, because she was gone before Agnes laid down. In any case, I'm comfortable saying that Agnes was alive and well at 11.19 a.m., and by default, so was Smitty. There's just no way that Agnes would have gone to lay down after walking right past her dead husband in the dining room. So her clock starts ticking for time of death at 11.19, which in reality is already a problem for the state. Both Mabel and Joe Zabo are crystal clear that Deb was gone before noon. Mabel knows that she returned home at 11.57 and Deb was gone by then, and Joe was working in the garage all morning and says that he's sure Deb left sometime in the morning, but definitely before noon. So just with that, if Deb is our offender, then she would have had to initiate and complete the attacks, gather up the panhandles, stab the note into Smitty's pants, and clean herself up well enough to not even leave a drop of blood in her car, all in 35 minutes. That's assuming that the attacks began within a minute or two of Agnes turning off the computer. Back to the timeline. We have the Courtney's alive at 11.19 on the front end of the window of opportunity and the time Lloyd was supposed to leave for work on the other end. I believe that at the latest, Lloyd was planning to leave by 1.30 p.m. Whether or not he was ready for work when he was killed has been another topic of discussion and another thing clarified by the autopsies. Was Lloyd ready for work? This question has been debated on the fan page for months now. It's stated in the police report that he wasn't dressed for work, but we have newspaper articles from the time of the murders where co-workers at the police station said that he was dressed for work. What we do know is that Lloyd was found wearing a pair of gray dress slacks, a button-up collared denim shirt, and black socks. We have pictures of Lloyd at work from newspaper clippings, and he's dressed in the same business casual type of clothing, slacks and a collared shirt. But what I found interesting about the crime scene video is that his shirt is untucked, It's almost as though he was almost ready for work, but not quite. The main point of contention regarding Lloyd's readiness for work comes from a statement made by the crime scene investigator, Patrick Gass. Gass appeared on the Oxygen television series, Snapped. During his interview for the show, he stated that Lloyd was unshaven. In his mind, a clear indicator that he was not ready to leave for work. But this is contradicted by the autopsy that reports that Smitty was indeed shaven. 
This was one of the questions that I was hoping to answer at the clerk's office, and I succeeded. The clerk's file, as I mentioned, contained several autopsy photos, including several close-up pictures of Lloyd's face. In this instance, Pirwani was spot on in his report. Lloyd Courtney had a fresh shave. In Agnes's prayer journal, on a few occasions she mentioned Smitty bathing right before work as she lay down for a nap. If we forget any suspicions we may have towards Deb for just a moment, let's look at how all of this fits together by creating a hypothesis that fits with what we know and what we might surmise from the journal. Deb says that she was only at the house for a few minutes after her mother arrived. So let's assume just for the moment that she's telling the truth. Agnes gets home at 10.55. Deb chats with her for 10 minutes or so, and she leaves to head to Cece's Pizza at 11.05. At that point, Agnes heads back to her bedroom to take a nap because she's not feeling well after her chiropractor appointment. Smitty decides it's time to hop in the shower. It's about 11.30 a.m. at this point. He shaves and showers and gets dressed for work. By noon, he's dressed and ready, but he still has an hour and a half before he has to leave. He grabs a banana as a snack. The journal indicates that he typically eats his lunch at work. Then he settles in on the couch to watch some TV as Agnes continues to nap. He's ready to go for the most part. All he has left to do is tuck in his shirt and put his shoes on. As he's relaxing, there's a knock on the door. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, any Anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Our next loose end that needs tidying up is really just some information that we haven't discussed yet. In the police file, we have a report written by a Sue Jacobson. Miss Jacobson was a victim's assistance coordinator with the Fort Worth PD. She wrote along with Detective Betcher to notify Deb that her parents had been murdered on the night of the offense. There's nothing groundbreaking in Jacobson's report, but it's a very detailed description of Deb's reaction to the news. Let me read you the report verbatim. On Friday, November 2nd, 2001, at approximately 8 p.m., I was called by communications to respond to a double homicide at 4945 Stadium Drive. Sergeant Anderson initiated the request. Upon arrival, Sergeant Anderson stated that I would accompany Detective Betcher to the residence of Debbie Courtney Perringer, the deceased's daughter, to do the death notification. Detective Betcher and I arrived, and after knocking on the door of the mobile home for several minutes, it was answered by a woman who appeared to have been asleep. Detective Betcher was in uniform and identified himself and asked if we could come in, that he needed to talk to her. Detective Betcher sat down on the love seat while I sat next to Debbie on the sofa. The appearance of the living room area was messy with clothing in piles on the floor and in plastic baskets. I wasn't able to determine whether these were clean or dirty clothes. 
There were papers, mail, and other items strewn about the floor, as well as a pile of Halloween candy that looked to have been dumped out with candy wrappers tossed about. The coffee table was cluttered with papers. Adult tennis shoes were under the coffee table. The TV was on. I could see the dining room table from where I was sitting and saw the table covered with clothes, papers, dishes, and food boxes. Debbie appeared to be shocked to learn of her parents' murders. One of the first comments she made was about how she was always afraid something like this would happen because her father had gotten threats in the past when he had to testify in court. When asked when was the last time he testified in court, she answered, last week, she thought, in juvenile court. Debbie did become tearful, but did not break down and cry and sob. I did not see wet tears. She would just stare off and not seem to hear what was being said to her. Detective Betcher asked Debbie some questions before Paul, her husband, came home, and her answers were vague and short. He asked her about what time she had been over to the house earlier in the day. She thought that she had left about 10 a.m. Her mother had bought her some trees, and she had gone over to get the paperwork so they could be planted. She was asked about her folks' grocery shopping habits, and she said they shopped where the sales were. Debbie also stated that someone was supposed to come over and look at the bathroom to retile it. He asked her about the cut on her hand that was wrapped in gauze and tape. Debbie said she had cut her finger while doing the dishes, and then when she went outside and moved some rocks. I did not see the actual cut, but I did see the gauze and taped finger. When Paul, Debbie's husband, came home was when she first displayed some strong emotions. She cried for a short period of time when Paul came in. He appeared to be carrying takeout food and set it down on the floor when he heard what Debbie had to say about her folks. Paul appeared to be very solicitous towards Debbie, but did not have much, if any, reaction to the news of the murders. Shortly after Paul came home, he asked to speak with Detective Betcher alone, and I stayed with Debbie. I tried to talk to her, but she was not very talkative, and did not make eye contact with me. She spoke lovingly of her mother, but did not seem to feel the same way about her father. She said that her mother was her soulmate. She said her father was, quote, always angry. She also spoke of the fact that she was dealing with some serious issues that had been repressed since childhood and was receiving professional help. I asked if her father had been the perpetrator, and she said no. Debbie did not volunteer any further information. Debbie was concerned about her daughter and how she could tell her what had happened. She mentioned several times how much Angela loved her grandmother. We talked briefly about what she could say. I also suggested if she was involved in a church that perhaps a minister could assist. She said she and Angela had planned to go to church tomorrow and then to her mother's concert. I thought perhaps she was confused about the day, but she informed me that she was Adventist. I inquired about the concert, and she said her mother sang with the sweet Adelaides. There was a piano just to the left of the front door as one would enter the living area. At one point, she spoke of her sister. I followed up and asked several questions, learning that her sister had been adopted as an adult by her parents. She was adopted in 90 or 91. I asked how well they got along, and she said that she was, quote, working on the relationship. I was trying to learn who other family members might be that needed to be contacted. Debbie began getting sick and would run to the kitchen and attempt to throw up in the kitchen sink. She would gag, but I don't think she threw up. It's more like dry heaves. I followed her into the kitchen several times to see if I could assist. At one point, I suggested she moisten a towel to apply to her face and the back of her neck. She ran into the kitchen approximately four times. I wanted to give Debbie space, but upon hearing some commotion one time, I went to see what happened. I found Debbie sitting on the floor, leaning against the island. That was when I noticed bruising. I observed one large bruise on the back side of her knee. It was black and blue. 
I also recall seeing a couple of other bruises, but did not make a mental note of where they were located, except one was on an arm. She was barefooted, and I noticed a bruise in the area of one of her big toes. I did notice dirty dishes all around the counters, and in one side of the double sink where the dishes were soaking in water. It did not appear that any dishes had been washed. There was a very large black plastic trash bag next to the island that held the sink, and it was full of garbage. The house appeared to be unkempt with dirty dishes, pots and pans, clothing, and piles of paper and food containers left out on the counter in the kitchen. The table and chairs in the dining area and the floor throughout the living area were cluttered as well. There's quite a bit to unpack here. Parts of this report add to my feeling that Deb was innocent, and some parts add to suspicions. Let's start with the bruises. Detective Betcher and Hardy both reported that Deb had bruising on her forearm. I've been critical of these statements because neither detective took photos of the bruises, noting that the reason they didn't take pictures was because they believed they were too faint to show up on camera. But here we have Sue Jacobson also describing the bruises, but in a lot more detail. Now remember, Deb's story is that she got the bruises from falling down the stairs. Jacobson's observations tend to support that explanation, more so in my opinion than assuming the bruises came from the attack on her parents. Let me read back to you again the sections where Sue discusses the bruises. Quote, I observed one large bruise on the backside of her knee. It was black and blue. I also recall seeing a couple other bruises but did not make a mental note of where they were located except one was on an arm. She was barefooted and I noticed a bruise in the area of one of her big toes. End quote. On one hand, Jacobson confirms that there was indeed a bruise on one of Deb's arms. But on the other, she also describes severe bruising on the back of her knee and on her foot. I'm sure there's a scenario where Deb bruised the back of her knee during an assault. But honestly, I don't see it. I think that the combination of bruises fits much better with a fall down the stairs. Detective Betcher wrote in his report that Deb seemed to cry when she heard the news, but that he didn't see any tears. Just as an aside, I really can't stand it when I see this type of garbage in police reports. Always in a case with a shortage of actual evidence, we see detectives documenting a suspect's emotional reaction as though it's evidence. We've seen it in Adnan's case, Sandy Melgar's case, and now in Deb's case. First of all, this is not evidence. Let's just make that clear. Different people react differently to different situations, and you never know what's going on inside someone's mind. Deb, for example, was taking a litany of medications for depression, bipolarism, and anxiety. Essentially, she was medicated to the point of numbness. This is how Sue described her crying. Quote, Debbie did become tearful, but did not break down and cry and sob. I did not see wet tears. She would just stare off and not seem to hear what was being said to her. End quote. Does that sound like someone trying to fake an emotional response to you? She didn't say that she was feigning sobbing but had no tears. She said that she was tearful. And the way it sounds to me, what she's describing is that Deb was in shock. Speaking of shock, let's look at Sue Jacobson's first observation. Quote, Debbie appeared to be shocked to learn of her parents' murders. This is coming from a woman whose job it is to make notifications like this. No doubt she has encountered hundreds of family members of victims. Based on her experience and training, her assessment is that Deb was shocked when she was told about the death of her parents. It 
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The last item on today's agenda is an affidavit or deposition written by Brenda. We haven't heard much from Brenda throughout the season. We've only discussed her calls to Hardy throughout the investigation and the fact that she passed a polygraph examination. More than anything, we've heard a lot about Brenda through Agnes's words. But in this deposition, we get to read Brenda speaking for herself. November 3rd, 2001, 1.52 p.m. My name is Brenda Reeves Stuckert. My date of birth is redacted. My address is redacted. My home telephone number is redacted. I have completed 16 years of school. I can speak English, I can read English, and I can understand the English language. I first met Agnes and Lloyd Courtney when I was about 17 years old. I married Agnes's nephew, Aaron Reeves. I became close with Agnes around 1982, and especially when I divorced Aaron. Around 1988, Agnes and Lloyd started talking about wanting to adopt me. In 1990 or 1991, I was going to be married, and I asked Lloyd to give me away. He again said he wanted to adopt me. In June of 1990, Lloyd and Agnes legally adopted me, and now I call them Mom and Dad. Mom and Dad have one biological child, which is Deborah. She also goes by Debbie. Debbie is married to Paul Perringer. I last saw Mom and Dad on October 14, 2001. They came over to celebrate my birthday. They had bought me a necklace. My mom and I communicated through cards, write letters, and emails. They had gotten a computer in February 2001 for Dad's birthday. The last communication was this past week through email, and we talked about Christmas and the concert she was going to be performing. I think the last time I was at Mom and Dad's house was Easter or maybe Mother's Day at the latest. I did not know them to have any problems with anyone. Debbie's husband called about 11.30 p.m. asking for James, who is my fiancé, and I asked him why, and he said he needed to talk to James, and I asked him what he wanted. Paul told me that my parents had been murdered. I asked him what he knew, and he said that the police told him that it was someone that they knew. It was not a forced entry. Paul said that was all he knew. I told him that I had to go. I was about to be sick. I hung up the phone. Paul and I have talked several times this morning. Paul told me that a police officer came to his house at about 11 p.m. last night asking him a bunch of questions about where he had been and then told him that mom and dad had been murdered. Paul told me that Debbie had been there sometime that morning getting some paperwork about trees that mom and dad had gotten him for his birthday that is this month. I talked to Debbie and she asked me to go with her to the Redacted. She has been going to Redacted for Redacted several times being Redacted. Paul told me today that Debbie had been Redacted. Yesterday I worked all day from 8.15 till about 4.30 p.m. I work at Frost Bank in Coppell, Texas. Throughout the day I had appointments where I might be in and out of the office. My dad wore a powder blue one-piece jumpsuit. It either has a zipper or snaps in the front. If he was not wearing it, it hung in the back bathroom on a hook. Signed, Brenda Reeves Stuckert. In her deposition, Brenda lays out her alibi, which to be clear is pretty far from airtight. 
She says that she was at work from 8.15 to 4.30 on the day of the murders, but also that she was in and out throughout the day. According to Google Maps, it's about a 45-minute drive from Koppel to the Courtney's home in Fort Worth. Without knowing how long she was gone and when, we can't say that Brenda is absolutely alibied. However, given the drive time both ways and the time it would take to commit the murders and clean up, she would have had to have been gone from work for two and a half hours if there's to be any possibility whatsoever that Brenda was involved. But I don't believe that she had anything to do with the murder of her parents. Let's think about this for a minute. We know because of the note that the attack on the Courtney's was premeditated. So if Brenda was behind the murders, that would mean that she typed up and printed the note, then disappeared from work for over two hours, which would be sure to raise some red flags. And then let's think about what we know about Brenda's personality. Based on Agnes's journal, my impression is that Brenda was moving on with her life. She wasn't looking for conflict with her parents. She just didn't want anything to do with them. She had a good job, and from what I'm told, her fiancé made good money as well. The amount of money that she stood to inherit from the Courtney's hardly would justify risking everything to kill them. Brenda just doesn't make sense to me as a suspect. For that matter, neither does Deb. By all accounts, Deb was extremely close to her mother, who she described as her soulmate. She was also dependent upon her in more ways than one. And let's face it, nothing that we've learned about Deborah indicates that she was a long-term thinker when it came to money. She was always looking for help to pay the next bill. She would get herself into a bind because she spent too much money at Target. She couldn't wait to show off her home, which was a small mobile home in a modest neighborhood. Deb wasn't the type of person to do whatever it takes to have the finer things in life. She was depressed. And it seemed to me that all she really wanted to feel was, well, normal. I just can't make sense of her planning to murder both of her parents so that she can inherit $200,000 sooner than later. And the note rules out a sudden burst of anger. This attack, whoever the offender was, was planned. And since neither daughter had any motive to kill their parents... I'm left with what feels like the only logical conclusion. The note was literal. And whoever typed those words, ha 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 ha, has been laughing about how they got away with murder for 19 years. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood-Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. 
To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. And Mike can be found at MurbGaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.